Good morning, church. Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we now enter this time, Lord, of, of hearing your, your message, your, your word, dear Father, as we continue, Lord, as this is, is a part of our, our worship. Just to hear your word, Lord, to ponder on it, Lord, to meditate on it, and to consider it. So may you bless this time, Lord. May you um, give me the words to speak, Lord. If anything is not of you, Lord, may it be turned up, Lord. Prepare, Lord, that hearts and minds of your people, Father, and receive your word as it is intended, Father. May we do so, Lord, pure and clean hearts, assured in our salvation, position with you, dear Lord. Lord, secured in our justification, Father, but ever so, Lord, reaching our sanctification. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this time we have in your house with your spirit. Father, again, we just all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a good day, isn't it? Amen. 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 I'm, I'm ready to skip this part and just get right to this. Um, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what's what's going to happen later. But um, but I, <laughs> but uh, man, I tell you, this this series of prayer is uh, well. I don't know about you guys, it's been a blessing to me at least. You know, to cause me to, to dig into scripture further and deeper, and remind myself of some things, remind myself of my own shortcomings in certain ways, and to. But also, I, I find myself encouraged, and I find myself have been edified in some of these things that. The things that I have have stretched for and earned for through the years are indeed God honoring, and so I, I pray that's the same for for many of you. And so today we're going to wrap up the the Lord's prayer specifically. Now we still have at least one more Sunday to talk about prayer in general. Our prayer series. Uh, I have yet a bit more to be said uh, about prayer in general, but today we're going to wrap up verse thirteen as we have taken time to walk through the Lord's Prayer and discuss it. So verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So let's get right to it. I have to admit over the years, I have found this a, a difficult, a difficult scripture. And this was because I have fell into the same mistake that many make. When reading, do not lead us into temptation, one might read this to say that the Lord the Lord being Jesus, is asking the Father to not tempt us, but rather deliver us from such temptation. He's asking the Lord not to tempt us. And the idea that God would tempt us is considered a direct contradiction to his known nature. So it creates a little bit of a conflict when we read it this way. But we need to consider James 4, 12 through 15. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, 
it brings forth death. So it's clear God cannot be tempted, and so God could never and can never tempt man with sin, as doing so would make God in party with evil man. He would put it would put God in party with evil man, making him a partner in his crimes. And may it never be so. So the words of the Lord's Prayer become difficult. They become problematic if we don't look at them correctly. And so much so, as Spurgeon points out, men have tried to change the wording of the prayer as to be sure it does not conflict with their sensibilities. Citing, he cites at least one teacher of the time who would try to change it to say, leave us not in temptation. But delivers from evil saying, telling, asking God, submitting that God, that the prayer is to say, God, don't leave us in temptation, nor take us out of the temptation. That is what the prayer is saying, to take us out of temptation, man being tempted, or some idea of being tempted by God. I point this out because when I heard it, it sounded very, very familiar to me. And I'm confident that I heard this sometime in the past and some teaching many years ago. Now, luckily, it never, it never stuck, I guess we would say. Regardless, it seems likely that some of you may have heard the same. But more, but more so, some would try to say that the word temptation here is specific to trials and nothing to do with sin itself, and those trials and difficulties. But again, that is not consistent with the language of the original text. We are left to consider the word temptation in the Lord's Prayer is not only to refer to trials, but also temptation to sin. So furthermore, we have to consider Matthew 4. But before we go there, I want us to note that we're about to read comes directly after the Lord being baptized by John the Baptist as we read in Matthew 3. So first we're going to read Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, answering, saying to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend as a dove, and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately, if we remove the chapters and verses from the scriptures in Matthew, the very next sentence says, Matthew 4 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But he was led by whom to this temptation? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him there, was leading him there into this place to be tempted. And this word is does, not mixed words with this. It is very clear. Now, some might say that, that but yes, this was, but this was merely a trial. This was merely a trial that he was being put under, and sin was not part of the picture. 
But sin was confronted by the devil himself. And I suppose, and we are sure Satan knows to whom he is speaking, but I also would say that Satan does not have perfect and complete knowledge as God does, right? So he's making an effort here to subvert the works of God for the redemption of man. So he attempts our Lord Jesus with physical needs and hunger. Since the scripture says he had become hungry after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, so he tried the Lord by saying, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. I have to say that had to be pretty tempting to do so, right? He was quite hungry after spending this time in the wilderness. And again, attacking his pride, he dared him to throw himself off the cliff saying, or citing the Father would send angels. He said, if, you, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself off the cliff. God will send angels to rescue you. You don't have to worry about it, right? If you're really who you say you are, if you are really who you claim you are. And again, Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world if our Lord would only worship him. But Jesus rebukes the devil, rebukes him, and rebukes his attempts by his knowledge of Scripture. Because that's what he does. Each one of these cases, he would recite back the Scripture. So we can certainly say, while this was a trial or a test, we can be sure there were tests not to sin against God. Which we know, of course, is not, wasn't possible for him to do so anyway. Now Spurgeon, being the wordsmith that he is, points out that when the wind blows, right? So we see... And, and we see Jesus as, as an example as well, being placed in this, this position of being tempted by the devil with these different things that he is tempted to sin because if he had done any of these things, certainly he would have been guilty of sin. And he points out that when the wind blows and it breaks a branch out of a tree and that branch comes crashing down, we don't blame the wind. We blame the rotten branch. Right? So it's not the fault of the wind that the, 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 that the limb comes crashing down. It is the rotten branch. It is the branch that is not secure. So we can dispense with things like, the devil made me do it. Which I'm sure no honest Christian would genuinely try to use an excuse like that. That's kind of a silly thing to say. But what about, this is just how God made me. God made me this way, so what else can you expect from me? And by doing so, we are now placing blame directly on the Creator and not the creation for their own disobedience. So we are without such excuses. Again, Cannot blame the wind. So we also point out the temptation that God brings to bear on us is not one of perdition. You understand? It is not one of perdition, but one of probation. Let me explain. What this means is that not one. In other words, what he's doing is it's not one that causes us to sin and such to take part in our rebellion against him, 
but rather the testing or observing the character or the abilities of a person. We all know what probation is, right? I mean, we often relate it to something to do with someone who's been in trouble with the law or something like that. They get put on probation. But any of you who've ever started a new job have been on probation. You know, anytime you start something like that, you're on a, a period where they're going to examine you. They're going to make sure that you are up to their standard. They're going to make sure that there's nothing hidden about you that they need to be concerned about. Right? And that's what this is. This is a trial of probation. It is to see and to observe. But let me explain it even further. So I want to go ahead and point out, this is not so that he, God himself, can see our character, right? For God knows our heart better than we do. We, we can't hide our heart from God. That is, that is a silly notion, right? The scriptures say that God knows our hearts, that he, he knows how to, his word can, can divide the joints. It can divide bone from the marrow. It can divide the soul from the spirit. And it says that the heart, the heart of man is the most deceitful. And so we concern when people say, well, follow your heart. No, don't follow your heart. No, don't do that. No, that will lead you directly to sin quite often. We follow the word and wisdom of God in the scriptures, not follow our hearts. We are to cause our hearts to conform to the word, not the other way around. So, what's the purpose here? What are we trying to do? Scripture declares the heart is the most deceitful, but in that testing, and it results, bear witness for ourselves to see. And so that we can see the condition of our hearts, so that we can understand, in reality, the condition of our hearts compared to God's Word, to God's truth, and God's law. And even the purpose of the law was to illuminate our wickedness. It was to make it clear God's holiness compared to us. Wasn't that the purpose of the law, at least in part? It to, was to make that clear and so that there could be no excuse. There could be, no one could boast. Is revealing it for what it really is and leaving us with no excuse and no place to hide. So, again, I know we read the Lord's Prayer some point in every message I've done up to this point, we're going to do this again. But the point of this is, again, is so that we can lay this scripture because even knowing what we've just said is still a little bit of a difficult scripture to understand what does it really mean? Where does it fit in with the rest of the Lord's Prayer or at least our, our model of prayer, right? So we begin again. But verse 1, excuse me, verse 9, I should say, Matthew 6. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be our name. We pray in light, as we spoke of weeks ago, we pray in light of the revelation of our adoption to the kingdom of God, which only some something, only some, a child of the living God, I'm sorry guys, I, I messed up my notes there, which only a child of the living God can claim. As we said before, the scripture cannot be understated that Jesus was teaching his followers to address God as Father. How important, how significant that was. We cannot understate how significant that was. And as the Father, 
We can call him as father. We can only do so by adoption. Because we are adopted as his children. Romans 8, 5 declares, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. So we declare that with these words. Your kingdom come. We're going to go to verse 10 now. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's sovereignty and establishment of God's law and rule, not only in our own lives, but for the entirety of the world, that the revelation of him in his kingdom is established to every corner of the earth and in the created world. Give us this day our daily bread. We not only pray for the needs and supplications of ourselves and others, but we declare our total dependence on the Lord as our provider of life, our physical breath, but also our spiritual well-being, our eternal life lived in him, fully given over to him as a living sacrifice. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are Here we recognize that it is the completed work of the cross and only by such that we are justified. It is by his forgiveness of our sins and only by such that we can have justification, that we can be reconciled, made righteous before a holy God. And in such, we forgive our brothers as we are often reminded his forgiveness for us. But now, verse 13. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Brothers and sisters, as believers, as children of God, we are to understand each of these truths, the ones we just spoke about, as they are given to us in Scripture. And as you recall the time Jesus was tempted in the desert, I told you that our Lord rebuked Satan by his knowledge of Scripture. But also note, that it was by Scripture that Satan tempted Jesus. Don't believe me? Go read it. Okay? Matthew 4. So it was by the Scriptures that Satan actually tempted Jesus. Now, I'm saying he didn't lie, but I'm not saying he wasn't trying to be deceitful. Because he most certainly was trying to deceive. Right? And that's the tricky part about false teachers is that they can use truth in an untruthful way and deceive us. If we are not fully aware, we're not fully grounded into the word of the living God. So that's why we say no scripture exists on its own. People want to throw a scripture at you. That's fine. What we almost ground that scripture over here. We must temper this scripture with this one over here and vice versa. So my point is that false teachers through the ages do the same and they deceive and often do so with God's words. But as believers, we should have an innate desire, an innate desire to please God the Father. Our knowledge of the scriptures are to grow our ability to discern the craft of our enemy. Excuse me. Our ability to discern the craft of our enemy must be sharpened. We often carry on our physical person in our emotional self and spirit, things that remind us of our failures, 
and what we learn in those times of testing. But as we are knocked down, as we see others around us get bruised and even crushed by the weight of their sin, maybe that has happened to us. Our times of unfaithfulness, maybe times of unbelief, we learn through these times. We become more resilient, wiser, more knowledgeable. And as the scripture describes as gold being refined in the refiner's fire. The fires we walk through burn away the chaff, that is the unusable parts, that is the parts that are undesirable, that is the impurities of our life. God uses these times to burn these things away. And some of us learn these lessons more easily than others. I mean, let's admit it, some of us are kind of hard-headed. <laughs> some of us are a little bit hard-headed. But the heart of the child of God is to be more like the Father. That is our desire, to be more like the Father, to seek His face, to know Him, to grow, to love His ways, to learn, to find pleasure in what He finds pleasure in, to find delight and joy in God's laws and find the freedom within it and not bondage. God's laws are not binding. They are freeing. They're absolutely freeing. And to know the more, and, and to know the more we are satisfied in God, get this, brothers and sisters, the more we are satisfied in God, the more He is glorified in us. Brothers and sisters, the prayer, do not lead us in temptation, deliver us from evil, is a prayer that every believer should be looking to as to define the direction of their walk. Hear me out. So you see, justification, we, we talked about justification earlier, which is by God's grace through forgiveness is done and completed in its entirety at the time of salvation. It is complete and is a final as it can and ever will be. And we are eternally assured of such, right? This is why we just had the, the moment of assurance, right? The time of assurance is to remind us of that, but also to give us time to confess our sins and confess these things before God so that we can deal with them and move on. But in it, we can know God will finish the rest of his work in us just as he finished the work of justification on the cross. But with that, that is, once we are beyond that, once we have and we are walking now justified by the cross, now we start the work of sanctification. And to be sanctified. That is what this scripture is pointing to. This is what it's talking about. This is what these trials and these things and, the, and, and God delivers from these sort of things. This is the purpose and the reason we often have to walk through these things. Now, we may be walking through them as a means to purify us, but we may be walking through them because we are not purified. Right? It works all kinds of different ways. But again, this is referring to not, it was justification. Now we are walking through the process of sanctification to be sanctified, to be made holy, set apart, and to seek after and desire holiness. That is something that is missing in many of the American churches today is a desire to walk in holiness. 
We think our holiness is how loud we sing or how whatever we do, but no, it is obedience to the word. James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The practice, or excuse me, the process of sanctification in a broad sense is simply becoming more like Christ as we continue in our Christian walk. And this comes in, in numerous ways. One is, quite frankly, the study of God's Word. Be more, more importantly, the application of what we learn from His Word and apply it to how we act and how we treat others and how we present ourselves as Christians. Number two, and, and this is not a complete list necessarily, folks, but the continuous dying of self, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices in prayer and in worship, and the submission of our mind and heart to the revelations revealed in God's Word, even against our natural or learned assumptions. And I have to be very clear about that natural and or learned assumptions. That is to say something that is submitting our lives to the truth. Have you ever been confronted with a biblical truth that goes directly against your natural understanding? Yep, yep. And if, if you're not shaking your head yes to that, then I'll, I'll, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, we'll have to read it again. Have you ever been confronted with a biblical truth that goes directly against your natural understanding or likely more often goes against what you were simply always taught to be true? Do you recall the process of grinding that away over time? It's simply because it simply cannot stand against that revelation. It takes time sometimes. We, we, we hear it. We know it. Oh, man, that just that just rubs me wrong. You know, I've got certain things built in my understanding and in my knowledge and, and whatever that this just seemed to go against. But as we continue to press on and lean on to it, it wears away. God's word, I pr promise you, will prevail. And sometimes God puts us through experience and times to have to learn that. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it seems like when you, life seems to be leveling out and you get things figured out that something comes along and knocks you off your feet, especially spiritually speaking. And well, we can often look at that and say, well, we are being tested. We are being yet again refined. We are being revealed to us our own weaknesses. A testing can certainly expose our weakness and show us that we still have what we still have yet to learn, but it can also build us up. I mean, when we find ourselves faced with a difficult trial, and I don't mean you spilled your coffee on your way to work and now you're late. I mean, you know, that stinks. That, that'll ruin your morning. But that's not the kind of difficult trials that I'm, that I'm referring to. Or, uh, or, you know, maybe you ran out of gas or someone disagreed with you on Facebook. Lord forbid. That's not persecution, by the way. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But <clears throat> Which is one of the reasons why I hate Facebook anyway. I, you know, the way 
way Christians tend to tear each other down is is uh, disheartening, to say the least. And don't get me wrong, I have no problem, you know, coming against just absolute blatant, blatant uh, heresy. But we are faced with difficulties regardless on the back end on how it turned out. But in hindsight, we can see where the hand of God moved. And we can see where he'd had grace in certain areas. And we can see where there was mercy being applied, even when we didn't deserve it. And when you see those kind of things and you can look back on those experiences, are you not encouraged by it? Even if the time went through difficulty, and even though you may have come out of there with a few scars, you can look back on that time and see that God's grace is what sustained you through it. That's encouraging to me. It helps me the next time I see another trial coming, I'm like, I remember the last one. And I remember what God did there. And I know God is faithful, so I don't need to worry so much about this one. And then after the next one, Let's do it again. We see those things coming on and on and on in our lives. And each time, if we are continue to be faithful in them, we are encouraged. So is your faith knowledge is not strengthened, is not your resolve even greater? So I don't want you just to look at these trials as some sort of thing just to beat you up so that you can see how terrible you are. It's so that we can also see how faithful he is and be encouraged by it and to strengthen our own faith. So the next time we have more to stand on, we have a stronger foundation now. We have stronger legs, a stronger back. We often see the trial and persecution, but in reality here in America, we do not really know what persecution is. I think we need to admit that to ourselves. And by persecution, I do mean religious persecution in particular. And we enjoy freedoms hardly like any other in any other place and time of history. And is it threatened? Yeah. Yeah. I assure you there are those who would love nothing more than take it away from you. Your neighbor may even be one of them. Right? So I'm not saying the threat isn't there, but I'm saying today we still have that freedom. And it's something we have to be sure we do not take it for granted. One can be sure that is why we must not fall into complacency and ignorance of the works of our enemy around us. But we're going to get into that at a later date. The point is we hardly know true persecution like our brothers and sisters throughout the world and through time, and certainly not like the early church. But we face trials and uncertainty. It's, it's unavoidable. We all will see that in our lives. and Ones that test our faith, our resolve, and understanding of God's Word. Let's consider Job for a minute. We all at least have some remembrance or, or knowledge of the story of Job. I encourage you again to go read that. Was he not tested? Was he not stretched to his breaking point? Was he not brought to sit on the ashes of his life? 
scraping himself with broken pieces of pottery, because he had sores from his feet to the top of his head. And we all know that God allowed Job to be tested in such a way, declaring him to be a righteous man, to be blameless in all his ways. He considered Job. He said, Satan was going around seeing who else he could devour. And he said, have you considered my, my servant Job? Look at him. Give him a try. And through a couple of different rounds, Satan was allowed to basically burn his life to ashes and even allowed to touch his body with the sores. And Job definitely struggled with what had befallen him. And he raised his petitions to God and quite frankly, he complained. He never cursed God. But he did level accusations against him. So you see, Job, as good of a servant as he was, has something else to learn. So God permitted this because Job still had more to know, still more to learn. Again, he never cursed God, but God did respond and he rebuked Job and his friends, save one of them, and set him straight by which, in my mind, God's response could be summed up with one simple question. Where were you? Where were you? God's response is some of my favorite of Scripture. And I encourage you again to go read it. Consider again the testing of our Lord in the desert in Matthew 4. We talked about it just a little while ago. And again, we didn't read the Scripture. But if you don't know the story, by all means, please go read it. It's an encouraging Scripture. I'm testing you. Go read it. This testing was immediately after his baptism. And immediately following that was the beginning of his ministry. So read that through Matthew. That's, that's what we see. We see uh, this, this very interesting, uh, uh, these, these steps that <clears throat> the Lord came to be baptized. Then he was tested. And after passing the test, he was then starting his ministry. I debated whether or not I should discuss this next point. Um, but I, th I still think it's an interesting story. And I've always said, and I'll, I'll, I'll correct this a little bit, but I have always said, do not trust a man without a limp. Right? I've always said that. And I've had a purpose for that. But this is in reference to Jacob. And as you recall in the lineage, lineage of the Jewish people, there was Abraham, who begot Isaac, and then begot Jacob. And Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Genesis 3.24, Jacob is said to wrestle with an angel. And of course, many believe that angel was the pre-incarnated second person of the Trinity. And that is to say, of course, Jesus himself. Christophany. So we say he wrestled with God, and quite frankly, the scriptures say that very clearly itself, so I don't know why there would be any debate otherwise, but 
And he fought and would not let the angel or would not let the Lord go until he was blessed. And during the fight, the angel even touched his hip and dislocated it. But he would not, he still would not let him go. Asking to be blessed. And what we know is that Jacob will, we know Jacob was a bit of a brat. He, to say he has some character flaws is putting it lightly. Okay, he was not a model brother or otherwise leading up to this point. But he had learned some lessons and he had learned some difficult lessons. And while we don't know what all transpired during that fight, we don't know everything that that occurred. And we can even argue what was even the point of the fight. I'm not getting into that. But they fought till to daybreak and Jacob would not let the angel go until he was blessed even with a dislocated hip. But in the end, he said, the angel said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now again, we can argue the point of the fight and other aspects, but I submit to you that when we say that he, he had prevailed, do not think he meant that he bested God. I think it would be a silly notion to think that he somehow got some sort of physical fight with the Lord and managed to, well, we'll say pin him for the three count, whatever. However you even consider that a win or whatever, right? Kind of a silly notion, rather. But rather, he simply passed the test. He had strived with God. He had wrestled with God. And so God... In his wisdom, saw some sort of change of character. And we can see that in some of the preceding scriptures, by the way, of how he was trying to figure out how to deal with Esau, and he was praying to God about his encounter that was coming up with Esau, his brother, whom he feared, because he had, again, done some rather uh, deceitful things with his brother. With the help of his mother, I might add. But I have to believe that there was some sort of change of character that God saw that in him. And so God decided to honor that. And that's how he prevailed was simply he had now passed the test. But in that struggle, God gave him a limp as a reminder. But probably more remarkable was a new name. And that is the name Israel, which is the name we know of today. So always said, don't trust a man without a limp. That means a man or woman who has not had their struggles and not had their natural understandings of things to be challenged and to have to wrestle with the truths of God. And whether that gives them some sort of physical scar or some something sort of mental or, or, or spiritual or whatever the case may be, they come out of it different. They come out of it with a proverbial limp. And they remember the struggle until they prevailed. That is, they passed the test. Jacob even said after this, he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Another indication to me that we know it's not some sort of idea that he fought and fought and bested and somehow won the fight through physical challenge, 
there was something else here. And also, after the fight, he asked him, what's your name? And tell me who you are. We have no indication in Scripture that he really told him, but obviously there was some revelation to Jacob whom he had been wrestling. Because he says, I have wrestled God face to face. And he also said, my life was preserved, meaning I did not bear it out. I did not live through it because of my greatness or my strength or otherwise. He was so because God had caused him so. It was by God's providence. It was by God's grace that he could stand, even though with a limp. And so, do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we see our testing is necessary. It's something that we are not to despise and understand it as, as part of the process of our sanctification, our purification, being made holy and set apart. So why is the Lord praying here, lead us not into temptation? Why is he saying, lead us not, when we are just looking at and describing the necessity of the whole process? Because it's not unlike the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's look at Mark 14, 35 through 36. Now this is the time that Jesus is spending in the Garden in prayer, right? Just before he is taken away to his crucifixion, right? And he is there and he is praying with his disciples and to the point that he is visibly and unmistakably shooken and in, 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 in despair even. The point of sweating blood. So he he went a little beyond them, beyond the, the disciples in the garden, and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here is the Lord's prayer to the Father for the cup to pass him by. In reality, we know that was. There was no escaping it. There was no other option. But in this prayer, while asking, he is also submitting to the Father's will and what? Obedience. This was a tremendous act and demonstration of his obedience to the Father. So why the prayer in this matter? Because it is a temptation in whatever form that we are subject to fail. And it burdens and grieves the heart of the believer to even consider offending the Father. And to offend and walk in the Lord's name in vain should be, ought to be, our greatest fear. It should be a thing that we fear the most is to bring shame to His name and to offend Him. Also in Mark 14, 38, as Jesus talks to his disciples, as he laments over what lays before him, he commands them to continue to keep watch and pray. And he says in Mark 14, 38, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is 
And while we should pray that we can walk in sanctification without such trials, we are submitted to his will. So we're saying that, God, I am a weak individual. I do not want to fail you. I do not want to be in a position where I will fail you, Lord. I, I would rather not have to walk through this. I'd rather be able to be conformed without having to have these sort of trials in my life. But, Lord, if it be so, if it be so, and we be assured that it is quite often it must be so, I submit to you. I submit to your hand. I submit to what it is that you are going to walk me through. But I do so also knowing that you're faithful. May it be far from us that we take such pride in our piety that we think we are not subject to temptation or believe that while in the flesh that we have mastered it to the point we no longer need to be weary of its hold. If we grow complacent and casual to the perils of sin, we will certainly find ourselves at its mercy. We must remain vigilant and remain conscious of it. The wise Christian knows of his own fragility, that he's frail. And the second half of this, but delivers from evil. Now, it seems like this would be where I would start to talk about spiritual warfare and read to you about Ephesians 6. And I say that because I dang near did it. Nope, that's not what this, not what this is talking about here. At least this is not the focus that we need to have here. What delivers from evil? We're talking again about trials and we're talking about being in temptation and, 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 and different things of that nature, the things that test our steadfastness and our ability. And we're asking God to deliver us from these things, from the delivers from evil. So we are asking God and praying for God and hoping for our deliverance from these things. So while we pray to not endure these trials, ignoring our weakness, it is certain that we will face temptation to sin, even as just by the work of our own flesh. We spoke about 1 Corinthians last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's read it one more time. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as what is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation will provide the way of escape also. So with the temptation, a way of escape is provided so that you will be able to endure it. There is nothing that we face as individuals that is not common to man. But we are reminded God is faithful. We will not allow temptation beyond what we can bear, and there is always a way of escape. I would point to the knowledge of this word. Now, let's shift gears just a little bit here. We're still talking about, again, that last bit of the verse there, but let's shift gears. And much of what we have talked about are concerning trials and often relate trials to difficult times, isn't it? I mean, when someone talks about trials and tribulation, talking about being tested, what can you think of? Difficulty. Hard times, right? Being being met with death or or uncertainty and all these kind of things. But let me assure you, times of prosperity are also trials. 
the times of prosperity and, and plenty, the times that we are happiest and joyful are also trials. All right? It's a test of our character. In difficult times, we often engage in a foxhole Christianity and to find ourselves scrambling to find words and hope in the scriptures. As I used to say, scratching and clawing at the third monk, you'll know his game plan. You can imagine that visualization there. The game plank of the ark being lifted up, closed forever, or closed until after the flood. Imagine being that third monkey just trying to get on board. Right? So we are often wait till we are compelled to be in prayer or in the word or even worship. Compelled by our emotions, be it by fear or by happiness. By happiness, I mean that we take the approach that if a preacher up front can present the word to me in such a way that it speaks to my flesh, which is how we have man-centered gospels today, then I will be excited. He speaks to my flesh. He tells me how awesome and great I am. He tells me how wonderful and special I am. I argue I don't think any of us are really special. Not a one of us. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners saved by grace. Plain and simple. But we, we look for that sort of thing. And if, and if he can get me excited by this, then, then I'll start to listen and then he'll get my attention. And that's how we have these man-centered gospels. And if the right kind of song is played in the same, and then it stirs me up. Well, now, now, now I can worship. Now I can worship when I am stirred up in my emotions. It's something that I can get into. But these old hymns, there's no excitement in them. We are not called to these things for emotional excitement. We are called to them in obedience. And if you struggle to keep God's word and conveyance in front of you, in challenging times, it is likely because you have not done so in times of peace. We do not prepare for war in the midst of war. We prepare for war in times of peace. I know this sounds like a silly thing to bring up. It just came to my mind. And uh, I'm a gun guy. I like guns. All right. I, I, I've always enjoyed them and one of the ones that I like is the, you know, of course, the most common caliber around here is pistols is the 9mm Parabellum, right? Weird thing to bring up. What are you talking about, man? Well, Parabellum is actually from a German phrase which says, if you want peace, prepare for war. I see that in the scriptures. If we want to have peace, we must prepare, spiritually speaking, for war. We do not wait till war comes to prepare for war. If you want to be sustained in the times of challenge, the times of, of difficulty, then you must build yourself up in the times of peace. You must dig in now. And so when those times come, guess what? You're already strong. You're already, your faith is already built up. If we wait till the difficult times before we start building, before we start to learn and dig in and pray, we've already missed the point.
<clears throat> prayer is something that often does not come naturally. It is something that when we begin to pray, we find ourselves getting tired or our mind wanders. And I get that. Believe me, I, I'm, I'm the same. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't uh, deny that. And sometimes we pray and it seems like our prayers may be just bouncing off the ceiling. I'm not sure what we're expecting to happen when we are sometimes just sitting there in prayer and we're just speaking or trying to communicate or so trying to relay something to our Lord. I'm not sure what you're expecting. But there's no excitement in it. Therefore, it's not something that we feel like we can do. So we sit there and we wait. God, give me the desire to pray. Anytime now. I'm waiting, Lord. Give me, give me the desire. Lord, give me an affection for your word. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I struggled with an illustration here. I really did. And still do, actually, because I hate the fact the illustration that I can come up with, the best I can come up with, you guys could probably do much better than me, but the best I can come up with seems to be silly as an illustration to compare anything to God's word and to God's truth and God's revelations and to prayer and to worship. But I'm going to try anyway. I'm going to try anyway and hope that it makes sense to some of you guys, right? So we think about these things that are unexciting and I just, you know, I read it and, you know, I don't quite understand it. And so I'll do it later or, or Lord, just, just make me excited or something. As many of you know, I, I get to travel a little bit in my, in my job, in my, in my, uh, in my life. And I get to experience some things. I've gotten to go over across the pond a few times and experience some different cultures and things like that. And it's, it's quite exciting to do so. And when you do, you find things that are just, well, let me just say weird. It's like, what in the world possessed anyone to try that? But something that I, that I encountered one time, which is something that all of us probably consider uh, very common. And I was actually in Michigan. Uh, and right on, if you know, Michigan kind of looks like the mint. I was right at the very tip top. And, uh, and uh, there's a bridge. I don't know why the name just suddenly is slipping. Mackinac, Mackinac, Michigan. So the Mackinac Bridge, and the Mackinac Bridge is a bridge that connects the lower peninsula of Michigan to the upper peninsula of Michigan, the, the, the UP, right? And it's it's quite a marvel, the, the bridge. It's quite large. One time it was built, it was quite an engineering feat to build it, and so it's kind of a tourist place, and I happened to be up there. I was actually going to a place over on off the peninsula to visit a customer site, and and the town that I stayed in there for one night in, in Mackinac, it's kind of a tourist place, right? And so it's just like any other tourist town you go to. They've got the, the candy shops and different things. It's just the same thing you see anywhere. In fact, that was remarkable, remarkable to me. A lot of stuff is the same things you see up in the mountains at, at, the, at the places. Like, really? Y'all can't come up with anything more unique? It was like the fudge shop and the souvenir shops and all that kind of stuff. And I was in one of those shops and I was talking to the guy. I don't even know how. The subject came up, but or, or how it came about, but we mentioned moon pies. I like 
moon pies. Probably too much. All right. And this guy, he didn't like them. He's like, oh, no, no, no. He said, I tried one of those a little, just, you know, like within a couple of years ago, whatever, and didn't care for it. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, he talked about the texture and the taste and, you know, just different aspects of it. So I don't, I don't really care for it. The thing is, everything that he said that he didn't like about it, I could recognize. Yeah, it is kind of that way. Yeah, you're right. It is sort of that way. But I have an affection for stupid moon pies. And I told him, of course, you put it in the microwave, it becomes a whole other world. Let me tell you. Yeah, you like that, don't you? <laughs> I don't know if you ever tried it, but the point is this. Why did I like a moon pie in spite of these drawbacks? Because I grew up with it. I had been around it. It reminds me of a time of my childhood. It reminds me of certain things. It, it, it reminds me much like, you know, putting peanuts in a Coca-Cola. Or a Mountain Dew. I love it. Because it reminds me. I just got a weird face on that one. No, don't. <laughs> but, but, and all of us can think of those kinds of things that remind us of a time because it, we, we grew up with it or we spent time with it. And others have a hard time appreciating it. Guess what? Not much different. Our time in worship and our time in prayer isn't much different. If we spend the time, if we have the discipline to spend the time, we will develop an affection for it. It will become to a point where we will miss it when we don't have it. It will become something that when it's not around, we'll look for it. Fellowship with my fellow believers, my brothers and sisters. When I, I, I have grown up in this and I have spent much time in this over the years, I cannot imagine any other place I'd rather be than in fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters. So what I'm telling you is you look at the Word and like, I just, it's difficult. Yes, yes, it is because there's a lot of junk to get rid of. There's a lot of things to grind down. There's a lot of things to get over. And I'm not saying people being scholars or, or, or something like that, right? But as we spend time with it, our affections, I believe, and I am certain, will grow. To the point where you're not sure how to exactly exist without it. Those illustrations go, they went better than I thought, or feared it might not. So, again, continue on. We are praying for deliverance, and I realize that some of you, maybe many of you, are dealing with these kinds of things and waiting for deliverance from, from, from evil and from difficulty. And I want us to remember that to make those times easier, to make those times more triumphant, to make those times more meaningful, we must be careful how we spend our time in peace. And we may find that we are 
plunged into these times because we refuse to give God the honor and glory that he is deserved in those times. We can see that throughout the history of Israel, can't we? Are they not a model of how God treats Israel? But I still want you to be encouraged. And again, by the scriptures, of course. So Psalm 30, 1 through 5. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and you have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, you, his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime, and weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. So if you are in time of sorrow and time of difficulty, remain faithful and know that he is also faithful. Know that your shout of joy is coming. But brothers and sisters, lean into the scriptures. Lean in. Don't be so hard-headed. Okay? Romans 5, 3-4. And not only this, but we have also exalt in our in our tribulations, knowing that the tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who He has given us, given to us. So again, as we go through these times of difficulty, remember that you are being refined and take and be rejoiced in that. Rejoice in that that the Lord is doing something. And James one through excuse me, James one verse twelve. We read this earlier actually. Blessed is the man who preserves under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those. Who love him. So, as I said before, this concludes specifically our teaching, or my teaching at least, on the on the Lord's on the Lord's Prayer. And the things that I hope that we can see and understand. And we will continue next week again on our series in prayer as we begin to look at other aspects of prayer, things like spiritual warfare and, and uh, corporate worship or corporate prayer, and look at some of the examples of prayer we have in Scripture and how that applies to our life and how we can practically approach prayer. You know, I, we were talking last week, and, you know, one of the frustrations that I, that I had you know, growing up and, and coming to young believers that I was constantly told you just need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. True enough. No one seemed to quite explain to me what it meant. 
never quite explained to me what it meant. I'm hoping that's what we are accomplishing here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, praise you, Lord. We worship you. We thank you for this time that we have had to share in your word, Lord, to share in your revelation, Lord, and to share, Father, as we have the freedom all together, uninhibited. And dear Father, I pray that the words that have been spoken here today have found fertile ground, dear Father. And if there is anything, Lord, that's not of you, by all means, Father, let it be burned up like chaff in the wind. Let it be blown away and have no effect. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness, Father. I pray that your people have been encouraged and edified, Lord. And Lord, that in that you are supremely glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.